Hey, it's Stephen Henderson. Today on the podcast, we're going to talk about juvenile justice reform here in Michigan. A slate of bills passed the legislature in 2023 were signed into law by Governor Gretchen Whitmer in December of that year and take effect now. What will they change about the way we deal with young minds that interact with our criminal justice system? And what will be the future? What other things do we need to do and think about to make sure that juvenile justice is not just about punishment, but is also about opportunity and rehabilitation? To start the show, we're joined by two guests who have been instrumental in pushing for these reforms that we see today. Lauren Kagali is the executive director of the ACLU of Michigan. Lauren, welcome back to Detroit Today. Thank you for having me. Also, we are joined by Nathan Triplett, uh, the State Bar of Michigan Director of Public Policy and Government and ACL Michigan Board President Nathan, welcome back to Detroit today. Thank you. Okay, so let's start here. There have been a series of important reforms to juvenile justice uh, signed into law in December. Before we get to potential improvements, I want to get your overall take on the slate of bills that were passed, how we got to this point, and maybe what is still in front of us. I know we're never quite done when we try to uh, make these kinds of changes. Lauren, I'll start with you. Thanks. Um, you know, as you mentioned, there's have long been decades upon decades of really systemic deficits to our criminal legal system as a whole. Um, and, you know, the recommendations that came out of the Juvenile Justice Task Force, which was a really important step towards digging into some of those problems, especially where there wasn't uh, sufficient data uh, to really understand what was happening to kids who became ensnared in the criminal legal system um, and delinquency proceedings um, are important because they're geared at getting at root causes Mm -hmm. and really ultimately trying to keep kids out of the criminal legal system, especially when they're ending up embroiled in that system because of poverty, instability in housing, um, food instability, and really meet those needs. And so it's exciting to see um, Lieutenant Governor Gilchrist uh, and the task force take those steps to make the recommendations and to have the Senate so readily adopt uh, the majority of those recommendations and turn them into law. Yeah. Um, Give us a a thumbnail, I guess, of what the juvenile justice system kind of looks like pre these these reforms and some of the the bigger problems that we have making sure that as i said in the open that rehabilitation is kind of at the center of what we do with juvenile justice so one of the biggest challenges that we've seen over the year, both with respect to the adult criminal legal system and um, the criminal legal system and delinquency as it relates to youth, is that there really just hasn't been a consistent collection of data. So part of the problem is we just don't know we what's don't happening. Know a lot. Yeah. And that's really been at the core of creating the task force and the recommendations that have come out of it. Now, some of the recommendations are critically important because what they're really trying to do is divert kids who should not become part of the criminal legal system or part of the youth, uh, become 
you know, sort of ensnared in delinquency proceedings, moving them out of the court system to make sure that they are, uh, you know, we're not, the court system isn't sort of creating a gateway into the adult criminal legal system, uh, which we know is often the case. And the other thing that I think is critically important about these recommendations is it really is working to get, again, with data, um, to acknowledge and get at the racial disparities that we see play out um, in our criminal legal system, in particular um, in the legal criminal legal system as it impacts youth. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Nathan, I want to bring you into the conversation. Uh, you're somebody who has uh, been around public life here in Michigan for some time. You were also the youngest ever elected mayor of... East Lansing, East Lansing, right? That's yeah. true. Yeah. <laughs> uh, t- talk about this issue and how we have uh, kind of made a mess of it, I guess, over a long period of time, and what you think uh, the slate of bills will will change about that situation. The word I've heard most to describe the impact of this package of bills, which I use myself, is transformational. And in your introduction to this segment, I think you really focused in on one of the key elements, which is making our approach to juvenile justice in Michigan data-driven. It's not that we don't know what the challenges are, and it's not that we don't know what the solutions are that work. It's that we haven't had the resources in place and the systems in place to implement them here in the state of Michigan. Uh, so f- in all sorts of areas around the JJ system, uh, including one of the issues that we'll be talking about this morning, indigent defense, which you see is this patchwork approach so that the county you happen to reside in uh, has a lot to do with the type of services you're going to receive and whether or not you end up in secure detention versus a community placement, whether you have supportive services uh, or uh, whether you were provided with counsel in these proceedings as well. And so I think one of the key pieces of this is recognizing that it shouldn't matter whether you live in Detroit and Wayne County or Grand Rapids and Kent County or Traverse City and Grand Traverse County. If you're a young person who finds yourself uh, as a, a system uh, impacted individual, you should have an assurance that you're going to get the same level of service and that we're going to be focusing on addressing uh, support for young people and getting them on the right path and having positive outcomes and not being unnecessarily punitive to the detriment of that individual and their communities and our state. Yeah. Uh, we, we have, I think, uh, something of uh, a cultural or narrative problem, I think, around the idea of uh, juvenile justice in the sense that there are a lot of people who are really focused on, hey, these are bad kids or bad apples and they need to be punished. I, 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 I feel like we still run into... Uh, that pushback when you talk about uh, uh, changing the system to actually rehabilitate uh, young people instead of punishing them. Um, what 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 is what are the things that we need to do? I guess to win more of that argument uh, to 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 get people to recognize and accept all the research that we know is out there that says, uh, especially when you're dealing with with young people in the juvenile justice system, it really has to be on. Uh, rehabilitation and getting support where it didn't exist uh, before someone got into trouble. Yeah, and your listeners will hear more about this from one of the guests you have coming up, but I think it's so critically important to remind people that we are talking about children who we know from the science, uh, their ability to comprehend consequences and the impact of their action to uh, project out into the future what will be the result of a certain type of behavior is just less developed than an adult. And the reason we have historically a juvenile justice system 
is in recognition of the fact that that immaturity makes people less culpable for their conduct, and we can intervene at an early stage to put people back on the right path. And I think part of the way that you uh, make that case to the broader public is pointing out that not just that individual young person and their family, although certainly them, but their community and our state are better off and we have more of our young people who are becoming productive, contributing members of society who can achieve their full potential. And the research is pretty clear. Uh, the path to achieving y your full potential is not just a system involvement. It's getting the supportive resources necessary to be able to uh, develop a career and uh, pursue your passions and have the support necessary to do that, not uh, be siphoned off into the youth equivalent of the criminal legal system. Yeah, yeah. Uh, we're talking about juvenile justice reform, and uh, our guests are Lauren Kagali, who is the executive director of the ACLU of Michigan, as well as Nathan Triplett, who is the State Bar of Michigan Director of Public Policy and the board chair of the ACLU of, uh, of Michigan. We're talking about a slate of bills signed into law in December that will bring significant changes to uh, our juvenile justice system here in uh, Michigan. It was a promise that Governor Gretchen Whitmer uh, made uh, a, a while back, and there has been a two-year process to come up with uh, this slate of bills and get them through the legislature. We would love to hear from you, the listeners, uh, while we have this discussion as well. Do you believe that juvenile justice reform is something we need to be focusing on here in the state of Michigan? Would especially love to hear from folks who have been involved in a juvenile justice case or have family members who have been involved in juvenile justice cases. What was the experience uh, like and what do you think would improve the system and uh, the process? Uh, as always, the number here on, on the phones is 313-577-1019. That's 313-577-1019. You can also go to Twitter and hashtag Detroit Today and uh, we can make you part of the program that way. Okay, I, I want to talk specifically about House Bill 4630, which is about legal representation. Uh, let, let's start uh, with what the current legal representation landscape looks like for juveniles in Michigan and, and how that's different than it is for adults. Sure, thanks. I, I'll grab that question, yeah. if that's okay, <laughs> Nathan. Um, so this is a... a <clears throat> really important question. Um, and I do want to say the assessment of the juvenile legal system as it exists in Michigan and representation of juveniles is not a new discussion. In 2020, uh, the Galt Center uh, did an assessment of Michigan along with several other states um, and came out essentially finding that there was no system in place in order to ensure that juveniles um, or children who were charged with, uh, be, were involved in delinquency proceedings, uh, were assigned counsel, and certainly not quality counsel. Mm -hmm. um, and so uh, they made a couple recommendations. One was that there be state oversight of the delivery of uh, youth defense services. Two, that mandatory standards be put in place to ensure uh, that there was accountability for what those services look like. Uh, and finally, that there's adequate funding to ensure that those uh, services can be provided at a, at a constitutional level. And so what's happening in Michigan is in the last 10 years, Michigan has um, invested in ensuring that adults who are charged 
with uh, in the criminal legal system that when they face charges that they have the right as required by the U.S. Constitution uh, to have effective assistance of counsel. In other words, they have the right to have an attorney present with them when they appear in court to defend them zealously Mm -hmm. um, against the charges brought against them. Um, Yeah. Yeah, go ahead. And the reason that's so important is because liberty is one of our most fundamental constitutional rights. And when the government charges someone with a crime, uh, it's critical uh, that the government is held to its burden of proof um, before someone's liberty is taken away. As part of that, the Michigan Indigent Defense Commission was formed and created minimum standards that allows, uh, that enables the state to oversee the provision of indigent defense services for adults. That system does not yet exist for youth, and House Bill 4630 would expand the Michigan Indigent Defense Commission Act to include youth under its umbrella. Yeah. Um, uh, of course, the if you did that, it would cost some money. Um, and I wonder uh, if some of the if some of the slow pace or pushback is about what it would cost. So I'm going to start off just by saying sometimes constitutional obligations cost Cost money. money. Um, And this is a constitutional obligation uh, that has been neglected for many, many years. Um, I also just want to highlight a couple things. You know, one of the things that's really important to note is that because of the work that's been done on the adult indigent defense system over the last decade, There is infrastructure statewide now um, into which a youth defense system could plug in. So um, things are not being developed out of whole cloth Mm -hmm. in the way that they were 10 years ago. Um, You know, the state has committed to funding indigent defense uh, for adults. And quite frankly, children just can't be left behind in that equation. Frankly, it's it's rather remarkable that we have kind of segregated youth out of uh, the efforts to, to, to bolster indigent defense for adults. You would think, uh, you know, from a, a moral standpoint, uh, young people might have come first in that equation. Uh, but, but again, I mean, I think that gets to the difficulty we have in having people really understand how different uh, this is from from a young uh, from a young offender's uh, perspective. Nathan, I want to get your reaction to all of this as well. Yeah, Lauren uh, mentioned earlier the Galt Center's assessment of the state of Michigan, and I think it's important to put a a, a direct point on this. Their conclusion was that our current system uh, is that allows constitutional rights to be inadequately protected for young people, um, and. Lauren's right; it costs money uh, sometimes to implement constitutional rights. Uh, but I think that this uh, program of expanding juvenile defense is a bargain at twice the price. And more importantly, uh, we need to think about it in the long run. So yes, it costs some money to provide counsel in the short term Mm -hmm. to young people, Mm -hmm. but providing counsel improves the efficiency and effectiveness of those proceedings because you have lawyers who understand uh, court procedure and uh, can help bring the voice of those young people to those proceedings. And certainly the cost to the state and its citizens and its communities in the long run of making sure that those young people are diverted when appropriate and that they have their rights recognized will uh, create long-term savings as well. So undoubtedly a lot of this conversation is going to be around the price tag uh but just like we do with our own family budgets you've got things that are essentials and things that would be nice and a 
meeting our constitutional obligation to provide a right to counsel to young people uh, certainly belongs on the column of things that are essentials and the state has an obligation uh, to pay for it and implement it. And that's what I hope they'll do by passing this legislation. Yeah, yeah. Okay, uh, Lauren Kagali and Nathan Triplett, great to have both of you here to talk about uh, these reforms and the need to keep pushing uh, to get more of uh, the reforms enacted. Thanks so much for joining us on Detroit Today. Thank you so much. Thank you. We'll be right back with more Detroit Today. We've been talking about the juvenile justice system here in Michigan following significant changes that were signed into law by Governor Gretchen Whitmer in December of 2023. We want to continue that conversation here on Detroit Today and learn a little more about these changes as well as what the future of juvenile justice could look like in our state. Uh, We're joined now by Senator Sylvia Santana, who represents Michigan's 2nd District, which includes Dearborn and Dearborn Heights, as well as parts of Allen Park and Detroit. Senator Santana, welcome to Detroit Today. Good morning, Stephen. Good morning to your listening audience. Yeah, it's great to have you here. Uh, So I want to start with your assessment of what happened in December and the effect it's going to have. What uh, which of these reforms do you think will have the biggest impact, especially here in southeast Michigan, which is, of course, the, the most populous part uh, of our state? Well, thank you, Stephen, for your question. I think all of them will have a significant impact. But most importantly, I think one of the biggest you know, um, resolutions to the juvenile justice system is being able to divert our youth to community-based programs to help support them in our communities versus sending them to residential treatment centers, which has um, nationally been proven not to help support youth moving uh, moving into um, actual corrections. And so uh, we're happy that youth will be diverted and also that um, our judges and our uh, prosecutors and have other options to make sure that kids get the wraparound services they need in our communities. Yeah. Um, in what ways uh, do you think uh, this is a major departure, I guess, from the way that we've dealt with this for a, a long time? Is it, Would you say this is a sea change in the way that we're thinking about juvenile justice, especially in the legislature here in Michigan? Yeah, absolutely. I think it's a sea change of how we're thinking about public safety in general. When you think about the last 40 years of being tough on crime and locking people up uh, with no real way of reforms or recidivism um, being really an option, uh, we are moving in a different direction. Nationally, it's been proven that um, crime has been lower and communities are safer. And I think that this is just a part of that initiative of uh, restructuring how we think about uh, reforms and making sure that our youth are being diverted from the adult system. And I, I believe that this is the necessary for us to make sure that uh, we are putting on them on the proper trajectory and not to the prison to pipeline. Yeah, yeah. So, so I want to talk specifically about the parts of Metro Detroit that you represent and uh, the things that you see uh, with regard to juvenile justice that speak to disparities and inequality and how the way we have been handling 
juvenile justice in the past here kind of exacerbates uh, those those gaps uh, in Dearborn and Dearborn Heights, Allen Park and Detroit. What does that look like uh, from your chair? Yes, when you compare um, to those who were diverted as youth uh, from being arrested formally um, and, you know, dealing with the court systems, I think you see a difference as far as their trajectory in life. Um, you know, research finds that there are people, the youth's involvement in the justice system undermines public safety, and it also reduces young people's future successes. And so I think one of the biggest things that, you know, we've seen in our communities is that um, you know, judges within the community have tried ways of making sure that um, not only youth are being diverted into doing like civil service or just, you know, working in a community to do volunteerism um, to support that diversion, but also making sure that their parents have that support as well. I think, you know, ultimately the challenges that youth have usually are resulting around mos- their needs. Um, you have kids who are transient, they're um, couch hopping in our communities, they, you know, parents, you know, financial situations are not often stable. And so that's why you see uh, youth committing the type of, uh, you know, minor crimes or petty theft crimes that are revol- resulting in them interfacing with the juvenile system in the first place. So I think that um, by us being able to have community-based programs and give youth um who committed minor offenses opportunities to um, get those wraparound services in the district and be able to help the whole family. Um, it helps with that diversion process as well. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, we're talking with Sylvia Santana. She's a state Senator who's serving her second term in the Michigan Senate. She represents the second district, which includes uh, all of Dearborn and Dearborn Heights, as well as parts of Allen Park and Detroit. We are talking about a slate of bills that uh, passed the legislature last year and were signed into law by Governor Whitmer in December. They really do change the face of our juvenile justice system. Uh, They lean more toward uh, I guess a holistic approach to to justice for young people who get themselves into trouble uh, as an effort to prevent them from uh, getting into more trouble uh, after uh, they're released from from uh, custody. Uh, we would love to hear from you, our listeners, while we have this conversation. Uh, give us a call. Let us know if you think the juvenile justice reform changes that are taking place are good for Michigan. We would especially love to hear from folks who have uh, firsthand experience with juvenile justice here in Michigan. Are you somebody who uh, has had that yourself? Do you have family members who have had interactions with juvenile justice here in Michigan? And uh, give us a sense of how that went, the things that you saw that seemed inadequate or inappropriate, uh, the things that you might change to the system to focus more on rehabilitation and uh, getting people opportunity uh, once they get into uh, trouble. 313-577-1019 is the number here on the phones. That's 313-577-1019. You can also go to Twitter and hashtag Detroit Today. And we can make you part of the program uh, that way. Uh, Senator Santana, I want to I talk a little more about something that we were talking about with our previous guests. Uh, yeah, even though it was able to pass 
past the House last year. One item that was missing from the series of bills that were signed into law uh, was the proposal to authorize the Michigan Indigent Defense Commission to fund and develop training and standards for indigent youth defense uh, in Michigan. I want to talk about why that was left out of the Senate bills uh, when it passed the House. Uh, talk, talk about what happened uh, to these uh, proposals in the Senate. Yeah, absolutely. So the Michigan End of Defense fund, um, uh, recommendations that were a part of this package, House Bill 4630, um, definitely were left on the table. And as you know, anything in government that requires changes also require time and money. Mm-hmm. And so that requires patience as well as stability. And when you look at the Michigan Indigent Defense for the adults, um, the recommendations that were made there have not fully been implemented thus far. Um, we haven't um, put all of those um, levels in place for supporting our adults. And so I think, you know, one of the things that we need to do is just make sure that uh, one, that we have, a, you know, the adult system working properly, but more importantly, also uh, making sure that we're being deliberative with um, integrating the youth uh, Michigan indigent fence within the adult system. So I think that um, we want to make sure that we're being deliberative, but more importantly, everything has a price tag to it. And so even with this, um, we want to make sure that we're doing it properly. But um, to your question, Steve, and I think also, you know, when we look at the Michigan Energy Defense as well, um, and also the other juvenile bills that we have put in place, we're hoping that um, through the implementation of these laws that we just we currently have put in place for our juveniles, that hopefully we're diverting a lot of our youth back into the community where uh, we won't see that uh, uptick in need for the MIDC uh, juvenile supports, but but more importantly, uh, you know, being deliberative about putting those implementations in place is most important, and also it costs time and money. Yeah. So give us a sense of the prospects uh, for this legislation in the next uh, legislative session, which of course uh, started yesterday, and uh, we'll get we'll get going. Uh, pretty soon. Do you expect that uh, you can clear those hurdles this this year? Yeah, I think, you know, when any time in government, when things need to get done there, you know, there's also I think that, yes, we can clear the hurdles. It will take some time, but I definitely think it's something that we will be able to do through this process, you know, but obviously it requires money. And and so um, that's going to, you know, impact um our budgets and and how we um, make that happen, but I, anything is possible at this point as yeah. far as um, timeline goes. Yeah. yeah. Again, three one three five seven seven one zero one nine is the number here on the phones. That's three one three five seven seven one zero one nine. You can also go to Twitter hashtag Detroit Today and be part of the program that way. Let's start today with Peter in Detroit. Peter, welcome to the show. Uh, good morning, Stephen. Happy New Year, and uh, good morning and Happy New Year to your guest you as well and i would the one thing that i really would like to see the legislature do and 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 i'm not sure i'm seeing that in in what you've been discussing so far is i think that we are to completely abolish trying juveniles as adults children are not adults they don't have the the uh the full 
reason and rational uh, capacity that adults have. We know that through science. We need to stop pretending like they're adults because they did a bad thing. Yeah. Uh, so, uh, you know, uh, of course, that is what the prevailing research all says about young people. And uh, I, I don't know that there's much of a debate about that anymore. But you're right. The the ability to, in the case of very serious crimes, and it really is limited to those serious crimes, to try uh, young people as adults still exist, and it still happens. And in, in in fact, we're watching right now uh, part of that process unfold as Ethan Crumbly, uh, who was uh, the young shooter at Oxford High School, um, is is going to be tried as an adult. Uh, uh, and there's a lot of there's a lot of emotion on both sides uh, of that issue. Senator Santana, I wonder if this issue has come up in the discussions about uh, juvenile justice reform. I know it wasn't part of the the, the bills that got uh, passed or, or even crafted last year, but I wonder if it's something that maybe is lurking in the background and may end up coming to the fore at some point. Well, we, I, I believe we have tried to... Um divert youth in, in several capacities as far as, um, you know, minor crimes. Um, obviously, through Raise the Age, we have expanded um, the trying uh, up to 18-year-olds versus, you know, just putting um, youth incarceration at 17. Um, so that's one of the things that we have to um, have um, implemented into law in order to make sure that uh, we are giving them a fair chance. And as, as your caller, Peter, said, um, there has been studies to show that uh, the brain is not fully developed at uh, 18, 19, 20, all the way up to 26. And so we have expanded the age on, um, you know, what how we look at those crimes as well. Yeah. Um, yeah. Also, it's very important to, um, you know, they also have to be eligible. And, you know, in the case uh, where the crime, the offenses are uh, a murder and, and and egregious, I think that you know we that's something that has to be looked at at the discretion of the judge and, and the courts. Yeah, yeah. So I, I, I want to talk a little about outcomes and what you, I guess, expect from this package of bills in terms of outcomes, and and I kind of want to focus specifically on. The data collection end of this, uh, our previous guests from the ACLU uh, talked an awful lot about the gaps in data collection that exist in the system currently and the way in which uh, these bills try, uh, try, to, try to fix that. I wonder what effect you think uh, that will have uh, as, these, as these new laws take effect. Well, I would just say this, um, Stephen, you know, during my duration and the time frame in the legislature, I've worked on several criminal justice reform um, specific task force, whether it be um, looking at sentencing guidelines to pretrial incarceration task force and then also the juveniles. And one of the things that Michigan is really good at is being decentralized. What I mean by that is that every county um, has their own system of keeping records, and there's not really a statewide system that is being utilized to capture this data. So hence why Raise the Age took so long for Michigan to 
actually enact versus other states that have one centralized system for communication and data. Mm -hmm. And so even through this process, working with our um, stakeholders to retrieve this information, they had to go to each, you know, 21 of the counties that were um, part of the study in order to retrieve that information. But it's imperative that even through the um, Healthy Human Service Department, where we actually have the child care fund that um, supports many of the juvenile issues, um, that we are collecting data. But like I said, it's something that has to be um, all hands on deck and that everyone um, from each county is engaged in that process. And so I think that if we can bring those records to the state um, with uniformity and find a way to um, house those records within one system, um, I think it will be most beneficial to um, the state overall in the long term. Yeah. And I think that we're moving in that direction, but it does take time. Yeah. Okay, uh, State Senator Sylvia Santana, uh, great to have you here uh, to talk about these uh, reforms in our criminal justice system as it relates to juveniles. Thanks so much for joining us on Detroit Today. All right, thank you. Stay where you are. We'll be right back with more Detroit Today. Covering the recent proposals and changes to juvenile justice here in Michigan. And we want to turn the corner a little bit in the conversation to get a better understanding of the importance of juvenile justice reform. We're joined now by Kimberly Thomas, a clinical professor of law and the director and co-founder of the Juvenile Justice Clinic at Michigan Law. Kimberly, welcome to Detroit Today. Thank you, Stephen. It's so great to be here. So let's get your reaction to this slate of bills that were signed into law in uh, December. How big of a change should we be expecting from uh, this this package of reforms? So this package of reforms is really important. Um, we in Michigan, you know, haven't really given uh, prior to this effort um, the the sort of time and attention to thinking holistically about our juvenile justice system. And so the task force was really an opportunity to learn more about how our system is functioning and where we can, you know, have practical solutions that are based in data that can do better for our young people. Yeah. So, so I would love to have you, uh, given your work and expertise, talk about why the juvenile justice system has to be thought of and designed and managed differently than the rest of the juvenile ju- or the rest of the justice system which deals with uh, adults what is it about uh, juvenile offenders and and uh, the way we manage uh, you know their their misdeeds and and adjudication that requires us to think differently about it Right. So the juvenile system started over 100 years ago really with a recognition that young people are different than adults um, And more recently, we have um, developed a more, I say, robust research understanding of how young people are different. So there's been a lot of neuroscience research that looks at um, the developing teenage brain. We have a lot more understanding of adolescent development, and that helps us inform that we can have a juvenile justice system that addresses both public safety and also the needs of young people in a developmentally appropriate way. Yeah. Uh, That idea of centering 
the concept that not only are these different minds than we deal with in the adult system, but that they are in need of different support uh, focused on opportunity, I think is is something that, uh, you know, there's a, a growing consensus around that, I guess, but it, it's not a it's not a hundred percent consensus. No, I mean, there's there's definitely um, a, a lot of roles that the juvenile court serves. Um, one of those is um, holding kids accountable for when they make mistakes. Um, another one is helping kids, you know, helping figure out what that individual young person needs to reintegrate uh, with their community, reintegrate with their schools, reintegrate with their family um, in a way that is going to put them on the right trajectory. Um, and that's um, you know, that's really important for us, right? Um, we want people to graduate into employment in college. Yeah, yeah. So a few years ago, you wrote an article called uh, Reckless Juveniles that explored the relationship between adolescent cognitive development and the juvenile justice uh, system. I, I, I want to talk first about what compelled you to write that article and then uh, talk about your findings and conclusions. So I was fortunate to be able to go to the University of Pennsylvania and get some training on adolescent development from, you know, real experts um, that are that are not lawyers, <laughs> so um, that really have an understanding. And so um, I think it's important to try to, you know, translate um, those expertise to to lawyers so that we can, ha- you know, learn from that information. We can learn from that research. Um, you know, it's, you know, probably nothing uh, earth shaking to parents of teenagers. Um, but, you know, we now have a greater understanding of, um, you know, teenagers are very present oriented, right? They think about today and not the long term ramifications of the decisions they're making. Um, teenagers are influenced by their peers and the people around them. And that's true for all teens. It's not something that's unique to the juvenile court. Right. Um, but we, uh, you know, want to be able to respond to that in in what we're doing in the juvenile courts. Yeah. Yeah. Um, uh, let's talk about the reforms that have passed and what effect you think specifically they will have. And if there are, are specific bills that were in the package that you think we should have a closer eye on than than, than others. Yeah, so the reforms are um, really we're able to take a systematic approach. So the task force um, spent really a year looking at and understanding our current system. Um, what are some of the strengths of that were? What some of the places where there had been maybe not as much um, investment or change? Um, and, um, you know, the there's some big, uh, you know, the big things that uh, I know Senator Santana spoke to, the increase in diversion and so, uh, you know, getting young people to, uh, you know, who aren't don't need to be court involved or deeply court involved, um, diverted from the juvenile system. Um, the reforms also set up um, really more uh, supports for communities and counties to be able to serve young people within those communities and counties and to really invest in young people where they live um, in the counties where they're from. And that is a really uh, significant change. Yeah, yeah. Um, in terms of outcomes, you know, I, I think it's often difficult to predict that what legislation will look like in action uh, and how that will be different than, than what legislators imagine when they author these bills and, and get them passed. But, but I, I'm really curious about how much effect people think this might have. It's not a small number of changes. And as you point out, there are some significant ones. Should we expect that that I guess fundamental shift 
that I think is what uh, the advocates for this reform are are looking for in terms of just the way we approach the entire concept of juvenile justice here. I think if these bills are successful, the outcomes that we'll see are a youth system that looks um, to the individual young person and tries to um, more um, in a in a research evidence based way understand is this a low risk person? Is this person who really needs a lot of supports from this community? And uh, you know what are what are the individual needs and how can we serve those needs of the individual young person so that we would um, you know not overserve kids who don't need it, right? That's not uh, a sensible way to go. Um, but also really, um, you know, invest in kids that are, are really high risk. Yeah, yeah. Uh, we're talking with Kimberly Thomas. She's a clinical professor of law and the director and co-founder of the Juvenile Justice Clinic at uh, Michigan Law. We're talking about the slate of juvenile justice reforms that passed the legislature last year or signed into law by Governor Whitmer in uh, December. Uh, also, would love to hear from you, the listeners, about uh, those reforms. Uh, also, uh, give us a call, especially if you are someone who's had interactions with the juvenile justice system. Give us a sense of what they were like and what you would do uh, to be to be different. Uh, how you would like that system to be different. Three one three five seven seven one zero one nine is the number here on the phones. That's three one three five seven seven. 1019. And uh, you can also go to Twitter, hashtag Detroit Today, and be part of the conversation that way. I, I want to talk about what's left off the table here. We, we've talked with both our previous guests about uh, juvenile justice indigent defense, which I think is a, a, a serious and important part of the reforms. I want to get your view on that and how important it could be, but, but also other things that weren't part of this package that uh, you think we might uh, encourage lawmakers to go back and 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 think about again. So there were certainly things that the the task force recognized are really hard problems. Um, so, for example, um, the task force recommended and and the governor has established a residential advisory committee that looks at um, placements for young people, and that's a really complicated problem. Um, there's no way around that, and so. Uh, there aren't, um, you know, bills that change that whole system um, because it's a it's an issue that needs to be thought through more. You know, everyone needs to be at the table to have a discussion around that before recommendations can be made. And so there are definitely things left undone. Um, but, you know, we want to, you know, obviously things should be done in ways that everybody's heard and good solutions are proposed. Yeah, yeah. Uh- what about indigent defense? How important is that uh, to to the picture here? Give us a sense of how poorly we manage it now, and and what what would look different. So the recommendations um, would help sort of uh, lift the tide of all boats, if you will. Um, so in some counties, there's amazing indigent defense systems. In some counties, there's very little oversight and support. And so what we really was recommended was uh, a way for there to be a little bit of a standardization, sort of a baseline of support for um, those counsel. Um, there's no, for example, there doesn't need to be training on adolescent development for people that work with these young people. And, you know, uh, I have a young, I have a teenager, <laughs> I work with young clients, you know, you really, um, that's different. important to have an understanding of that <laughs> yeah. in order to work effectively with someone. And so really making sure that, um, 
there's the training and support there. Yeah. Uh, are you surprised that that wasn't more at the fore of these reforms? I mean, it, it seems like such a big gap, especially since we have taken steps in Michigan to do better with adults in terms of indigent defense. You would think, you know, children are almost always more vulnerable. Uh, that 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 might have been, we might have led with that, I guess. Yeah, I mean, I, I think that, you know, the, this entire process has um, helped us appreciate maybe how little we've focused on our young people in, in this system. And, um, you know, I think it's a good opportunity to say, hey, you know, where else have uh, in other systems we um, made improvements and, and, and should we also apply those in our youth justice system in a way that is consistent with the goals of that system. And so um, I think it's, you know, in some ways, the very same question that, that of all the reforms. Yeah. I also want to give you a chance, uh, as before we run out of time here on the segment, to talk about the work at the Juvenile Justice Clinic and uh, Michigan Law, the things that you see and encounter uh, with regard to juvenile justice and, and uh, I guess what the landscape looks like from that advocacy role. Yeah, so I um, do training of young uh, lawyers, or so current law students there, and you know it's it's a good challenge for a young lawyer to to work with a teenager mm-hmm. to uh, learn about adolescent development, to learn about how the juvenile courts work. Um, but I also think it's a space where um, young lawyers see a lot of hope. You know, they see the capacity for. Uh, teenagers to grow. They see them have the capacity to change. Um, you know, they see them re-engaging in their schools. They see them acknowledging their mistakes. And so, um, for me, it's a real, it's really great because mm-hmm. I can see um, law students see the the, the potential. Yeah, there, yeah, know? and learn early about the differences uh, to, to to be able to to understand. I mean, you were talking earlier about. Uh, that, cogniz- that, that that cognition about, hey, these are different individuals than, than adults. Getting that as a law student, I would imagine, would give you a real advantage when you were uh, out practicing. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So yeah. it gives it gives me it gives them a lot of hope, which I think is a great way to start your professional career. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay, uh, Kimberly Thomas, uh, it was really great to have you here uh, to talk about these reforms and your work. Thanks so much for Thank, joining us. Thank you so much, Stephen. It's great to be here. Today's episode of Detroit Today was produced by Sam Corey and Nick Austin. Our technical director and engineer is Nate Bender. Our assistant producer is Maddie Boyer. Editing and mixing is by Connor Anderson. Our music is by Sam Bobian and Will Sessions. Our podcast manager is David Lyons, and our program director is Adam Fox. Detroit Today is a production of WDET Public Radio. If you love the conversations we have on Detroit Today, consider donating to WDET, the public radio station in Detroit that we call home. If you want to be a part of the conversation and call in, you can listen live every day on WDET.org or on the WDET mobile app. Or if you live in Southeast Michigan and still love listening to good old-fashioned radio like me, 
Tune in to 1019 FN.